0: Hi there. It's great to be with you again. If you have a Bible, do you want to turn to Revelation 21? Revelation 21. It's Good News Day in the series, by the way. So we, having been laboring in these passages of judgment for a few weeks now and thinking, wow, this is pretty tough, some heavy stuff here, we now step out from the clouds into the bright sunshine of the new creation. And it's a glorious moment in the, in the book as a whole. Some of you have been waiting for weeks for that. And uh, the passage that we begin with today the start of Revelation 21 is really famous. It's so famous that you've probably heard it, even if you don't normally go to church. So you might be new today, you might never have been to any church before today, or new to this one, and the chances are you might well have heard, and then I looked and I saw a new heavens and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. You may well have heard that. It's often read at funerals. It's the, it mentioned as the ship is sinking in Titanic. It's a very famous Bit of writing, and it describes the glory of the new creation. But the weird thing is, if you are a Christian, you're familiar with the Bible, you may assume that the Bible finishes with a long description of the new creation. And actually, there's only eight verses of it in this passage, and having described the new creation for eight verses, the writer then goes on to describe the church for the next 20. It's a glorious description of the beauty and riches and wonder of the church, not just of the new creation in which the church will live for eternity with Jesus. And so the new world is glorious, but in the book, it actually serves as the backdrop for the wedding between the lamb and the bride. And many of us probably don't really think that way about the end of the Bible. A few weeks ago, I went to my cousin's wedding and it was a glorious Backdrop. I mean, the scenery was stunning. It was in the Cotswolds, an evening in late May, beautiful landscape, two, long, two mile long driveway, right? The menu was great, the cocktails, the band, it was, you know, A list kind of wedding. And I, as I went there, I, you're sort of overwhelmed by the beauty of the setting and you're going, can you believe this stuff? Look at all this. But that wasn't my cousin's main focus. And in fact, if I had run into my cousin Jake and said, have you seen all this stuff? Where did you get this place? And gone on a lot about the backdrop, I think he, after a while, would have said to me, no, 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 come, let me show you the bride. The purpose of a wedding, the purpose of the backdrop of the wedding, actually, is to glorify and present in as much splendor the bride. It's not to detract from it or to act as a rival to her beauty. It's actually as a way of promoting the beauty of the bride. And the setting is not the main point. And so when you read Revelation 21 and you think about this glorious new world, and we will... We've got to read that mindful of the fact that it is there as the backdrop to the unveiling of the church, the love of Jesus' life, who he then spends the rest of the chapter describing. She's beautiful. One of the most common movie storylines is the storyline of the ugly duckling, and you surely seen a movie with this story in it, the ugly duckling, you know, that you think, oh, what's that? And then it turns out to be a beautiful swan at the end of the story. And that happens in a lot of movies. I just started thinking about some of the ones you might know of, like Cinderella, The Frog Prince, My Fair Lady, Shrek, Clueless. She's All That, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, Greece, Sabrina, The Devil Wears Prada, Miss Congeniality, Mean Girls, Are You Troubled Yet by How Many of These Movies I've Seen. I actually watched Mean Girls on my own in a cinema in Bishop Stortford when I was in my early 20s because I missed a flight from Stansted and there was nothing else to do in Bishop Stortford or at least at the time. But anyway you've seen some of those movies and they all have the same premise and they're fun because they are movies about Usually it's a woman, but there's a sort of either coarse or awkward or slightly dumpy hero who turns out to be this gorgeous woman at the end of the movie. And you know at the start of the movie that's what she will be. And that then affects the way that you view her in the here and now when she's still not very attractive. So you meet Anne Hathaway at the start of the movie and you think, yeah, she's going to be this stunning revelation at the end. But for now, people are reacting to her just for what she is now. And we get to look at the movie going, I, don't, I know not just what she is, but what she will be. And that creates the drama of the entire movie. And the ultimate example of an ugly duckling story is the story of the church. The bride of Jesus Christ. The destiny of the church is to be unveiled as the bride of Jesus Christ. Radiant, glorious, and we're going to see that in a moment. But in the meantime, right now, she is often awkward, coarse, compromised, slightly unattractive, a bit dumpy perhaps, and a bit of a mess. Does that describe anyone around you right now? Right? That's the reality, isn't it? That we, we know how the story ends. We know the ugly duckling will become a beautiful swan, but that future beauty enables us to relate to her now in the present with a sense of hope and dignity about who she will be. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Screwtape Letters, he's got this lovely thing where it's a a sort of senior demon trying to coach a junior demon how to mess up Christians. And the senior demon is writing to the junior demon saying, you've got to get people to obsess over the problems in the church now and make sure that they don't ever look at the future beauty of the church. Keep their eyes off that. And there's this wonderful comment, he says, you've got to look around, make make Christians look at their neighbours in the pew instead of at the future reality of the church. And then he says, provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient, that's the Christian, will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. In other words, the job of the demons or the devil is to say, don't look at the future glories of the church, just look at the mess that's around you this morning. Demons want you to obsess over the duckling and forget the swan. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus wants you to see the swan and through seeing the swan's beauty to be able to love and give your life to being part of and serving the duckling. Let's read Revelation chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I'll be his God and he'll be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, The detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who have the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw nor anyone who does what's detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of God. The chapter begins with the last word on the new creation, and it ends with the last word on the church. So we will start with the new creation because we need to look at that but actually remembering that most of the focus of the chapter is on the glory of the church. And it's worth saying, when we look at the new creation, I find it fascinating as you read that description, that it's mostly described, the new world that God will make. When the resurrection of the body happens, the church are raised, the new bodies are given us all, creation itself will be resurrected. And as John describes it, he mainly describes it by telling us what is not there. That's, how he, that's his way of trying to communicate the splendor of the new creation. He says, there is no sea. Right? I saw new heaven, new earth, first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So the sea, in Jewish thought actually up to this point, represents chaos and darkness and death. It's a land of monsters and people disappearing and shipwrecks and danger. And all of that, chaos, primordial rebellion against God, danger, that's all been abolished. It doesn't mean, by the way, that there is going to be no body of water in the new creation, as if everything is just land, or just even worse, a desert. That's not true at all, because of course as soon as we start reading Revelation, we realize there's a river flowing from the crystal sea, flowing from the throne out to water the world. So this is a world that's full of water as well, and that might be a great encouragement to those of us who are looking forward to surfing and snorkeling in the new creation. Something unthinkably glorious. That doesn't mean the sea in the sense of body of water's gone, but it means the sea in the sense of rebellious, dangerous, chaotic forces rebelling against God have been subdued and silenced. There's no sea. There's also no sadness. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There won't be any mourning, crying, or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There's something incredibly intimate if you've ever done it, about comforting a child by wiping away their tears. I have a three-year-old boy. Um, I have three kids, but the youngest at the moment cries more than the others. And sometimes you just get to hold him and say, Sam, it's going to be okay. And you just wipe away tears. There is something very beautiful about doing that. And God, as our Father, will do that for us on that day. But he will then do what earthly parents cannot do, what I cannot do for my son. He will not only wipe away the tears that have come, but he will ensure that they will never come again. He will say to you, there is nothing that you will ever need to cry about ever again, except perhaps joy. There is nothing left to make you sad. I have defeated it at the cross. There will be no sadness. There will also be no sin. And this to me is a baffling thought. Like, What is the world like if you remove sin from it? There's no, as we've just read, no cowardice murder, adultery, deceit, sorcery, idolatry, or any sin, right? John is listing those things as a way of saying this is a comfort. The world that is currently plagued by those things won't have any anymore. And it's almost hard for me to imagine a world without sin because I'm so used to it in the fabric of what we are. So quoting, if you forgive me again, I'm sure for quoting Augustine, as I often like to do, the great African philosopher, theologian, Augustine said this, he said, "'The souls in bliss will still possess free will on that day, "'though sin will have no power to tempt them. "'They will be more free than ever, "'so free, in fact, from all delight in sinning "'as to find in not sinning an unfailing source of joy.'" Augustine is saying, the fact that there is no sin won't mean we're less free. It'll mean we're more free because we will be free to do whatever we truly want and were made for rather than the things that sin and the devil and the flesh hoodwink us into thinking we want that actually don't deliver. There'll be no sin. And then there'll be no death. And there will be, there was no more death. I mean, it's just unimaginable. This is the hardest one for us because we are so bound up with the concept of death. We can't really understand things like time or experience or pain, anything, without it. And we, Time is really a measurement of proximity to our own death. That's why we count time so diligently. And it's really hard for us to imagine a world without death. Whenever I teach on this, to, to, I've often done it teaching to teenagers and students, and a question that always comes is, so hang on, if there's no death, does that mean that I could jump off the roof of this building from the fourth floor and land on the street and I wouldn't be hurt? I'm like, yeah. But it's hard to imagine, isn't it? Touch to imagine a world in which the laws of physics still function and people don't die. But death then, on that day, death will be as unimaginable as life without death seems now. There'll come a day when we will be looking back to our current selves going, Are you? I had a weird dream last night, man. I, I just felt like there used to be this world. It kind of vaguely wafted through my brain and out again. But there used to be a world in which there were these things called hospitals and the smell of antiseptic and there were these things called ambulances and there were these things called funerals and it just didn't really make any sense there's like this stuff called bad weather and american sliced cheese and all sorts of other evils that i just can't relate to as ever having was that real or was that just something that we've made up and you and i will be in that day as unable to imagine death as we currently are to imagine a world without it but the new creation isn't justified by what's not there It's also defined by what is there. We hear what is there, and we hear that there is going to be the presence of God. Verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. We will be in his presence forever. And that matters more than an eternity of surfing and snorkeling. Jesus will be there. God will be there unmediated by any distance or clouds or any, any physical distance. He will be there in person, in the city. We will be in his presence forever there will be presence there will be renewal as well behold i am making all things new verse 5 right it's not just that you will be new or that i will be new all things will be new london will be made new right imagine the redemption of London. Imagine what it looks like for London to be made new and cleansed from sin. So there is not a trace, right? Anywhere you walk in this city, there is not a trace of evil, sin, death, anything. All of the good bits have been purified and renewed and all of the bad bits have been destroyed. What is it like to live in a city like that? All things are made new. The planets were made new. The universe will be made new. We only get to see one sunrise. God gets to see billions. Because every planet has a sunrise. Now imagine being able to see them. Imagine a universe that has burst into life. Will there be life on all of the planets rather than just one? Who knows? Will we, like the risen Lord Jesus, be able to teleport from place to place without having to walk there or drive there? Who knows? I certainly hope so. There will be renewal. There will be presence, there will be renewal, there will be satisfaction as well. Verse six is lovely, isn't it? To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Right, it's this wonderful idea that every longing we have will be satisfied on that day. That we will come with our thirst and find it fully satisfied by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's that lovely line in the last, at the end of the last battle by C.S. Lewis where they conclude and they see the new creation and they say oh the reason why we used to love the old Narnia so much is because it sometimes looked a little bit like this that's the feeling of satisfaction of relief of the thirst being quenched that we will all face and of course inheritance because he says in verse 7 the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son and daughter So there is a glorious portrait of the new creation here that we would do well to spend time reflecting on, praying through, meditating on. And that's a pretty remarkable vision of the future. But as we've said, John's primary focus isn't even that. That, for John, isn't even the biggest show in town. He then says, come, let me show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, in verse 9. It says in verses 10 and 11, then he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now, what are we supposed to read about our understanding of the church from this description? Because it's stunning. Well, we're supposed to see that the church, as we've said, the beautiful swan. The church is going to be beautiful. It's so beautiful that John's pictures become confused and tumble into one another. Right? So in verse 18 he says, the city was pure gold, clear as glass. At which point anyone who's ever looked through a window and seen gold on their ring goes, that's not a thing. You can't have pure gold, clear as glass. Glass is like the opposite of gold. Glass is transparent. Gold is the densest, heaviest, most substantial thing that we know about. How on earth can you have something that's pure gold, that's glass-like? And John's saying, yeah, I know. I, I don't know how to describe it either. If you were there, you wouldn't have done a better job. Because the glory of the church is indescribable in its beauty. There is something about the church that is going to be transparently glorious, as well as being deeply rich and heavy and glorious in that sense. It's unimaginable. The city's going to be beautiful. The church will be beautiful. The church will be multicolored as well. I love that. I feel like we get tastes of that in this church. I feel like we get fragments of it on... Diversity Sunday, or even just when we worship together, I just see little fragments, little tastes of the multicoloured people of God that we will one day be. But we hear in the text, don't we, the city walls have 12 foundations studied with precious stones that shine in a bewildering variety of colours. So you have blue sapphire, green emerald, red jasper, orange carnelian, purple amethyst, and then you have pure light shining through the middle of all of it, refracting into billions of subcolors right across the spectrum. We hear that the 12 gates were 12 pearls, and each of the gates was made of a single pearl. And that, you know, In other words, the pearly gates are not made of little individual pearls. They are made of one enormous pearl each. I have a confession to make here, which is that I grew up in mid-Sussex on the London to Brighton railway line. And when I, I, didn't, I was in my 20s before I realised that Pearly Gates was spelled P-E-A-R-L-Y, as in of Pearl, rather than P-U-R-L-E-Y, as in suburb of Croydon. I honestly didn't know. It never even occurred to me, because I was just going, Pearly Gates, obviously something theological, and I was way older than you ought to be before I realised that I had totally misunderstood what that meant. Just saying. But the city is multicoloured and studded with jewels of all kinds. The city is also perfect. Right? The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are all equal. Right? So this is a perfect cube, just like the Holy of Holies in Israel's temple was a perfect cube. It's like this is the perfect temple dwelling place of God. But in case you're wondering how far 12,000 stadia is, this perfect cube, the city, the church, would cover half of the continental United States, and reached 260 times the height of Mount Everest. The church is complete. The church is perfect. The church is perfectly proportioned and perfectly full to the glory of God. It's complete as well, not just in space, but also in time. So the gates, we've heard, are named for the tribes of Israel, and the foundations are named for the apostles. So you have the old there, as well as the new. You have the old which is the 12 tribes of Israel, and you have the new, which is the 12 apostles of the Lamb, and the new is the foundation for the old. Which means that just as you you and I are here on the legacy and strength of the faith of people like Moses and Elijah and Hannah and David, and that day we will worship together with them the same Saviour. And actually the new will serve as the foundation for their faith, just as their heritage has proved the foundation for ours. The church is complete the church will be holy. I saw no temple in the city, John says, because its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Well, that doesn't sound like much to us. us. We may not have very many temples around here, but in the ancient world, you couldn't really be a city unless you had a temple. That's what a temple made, that's what a city was. It was a place with a temple to the God. Temples were holy space. In the new creation, you don't need holy space because all of the space is holy. The entire cosmos has become sacred space. It's become the most holy place. God lives among her everywhere. So you don't need a temple because the temple would imply there was somewhere where God was not and there isn't. The city is radiant. Verse 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. So the city is glowing with light at all times. Shining out light that the nations can walk by. And finally, the church, the city, is incorruptible. Verse 25, its gates will never be shut by day, but then we read, they'll bring into it the glory and the honour of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. And to me, maybe because I'm a pastor, that was one of the ones that struck me the most deeply, to think that the church's doors will always be open and yet nothing unclean will ever come in. The reason it struck me, I think, is because I'm very aware, and many of us are, that Working in the church as she is now, while we still have the, the ugly duckling, rather than the glorious one, the church in the present time is always, some degree, caught up with a tension between inclusiveness and purity. Right? So you get churches that are very, very pure, nothing unholy ever comes in, but they're not inclusive. And then you get churches that are very, very inclusive, everybody's welcome, but in the end it becomes very difficult to maintain purity in a context where everyone can do anything. And you manage that tension. And you manage that tension actually in in our own lives. We manage that tension in the church. Every time we come to the Lord's Supper, as we will in a few minutes, we are aware of the difference between those who are effectively invited and whether or not we are pure. And we always feel that tension. It works out in all kinds of parts of our lives, in our families. But on that day, that tension will have gone. There will be no such thing as a tension between inclusion and purity because the gates of the city will be open and nothing unclean will ever get in. Will disappear forever, and that is the destiny of the people of God to be this perfectly inclusive and perfectly pure, beautiful, multicolored, perfect, complete, holy, radiant, and incorruptible city in which we will live with Jesus forever. It's a glorious church, it's a beautiful vision. And John leaves us in chapter 21 with that thought. Jesus wants us to have our eyes trained on that marvelous reality and not to lose sight of it while we're dealing with the duckling right screw tape in c.s lewis's letters screw tape doesn't want you to do that screw tape wants you to obsess over the duckling the devil doesn't want you to see the glorious end time church he wants you to give all of your attention to focusing on the annoying things that christians do now the challenges of ordinary church life again i'm a pastor i know what many of them are right this is a large part of what i've done for nearly 20 years is to engage with some of those challenges and to be honest if without meaning to, to create some of those problems for other people. I know I've done that, and I know you know what they are. But the devil wants you to obsess so much over those failings that you never get to see the swan. He wants you to obsess not just over the failings of the church now, but over the church throughout history as well. And say, and again... I teach church history. I know a lot of these failings are. I know the people we've burned. I know about the Inquisition. I know about slavery. I know about the Crusades. I know about all of the the church's, anti-Semitism, all of the church's greatest hits. And the devil wants me, and he wants you, to only see that and never to notice the glory of who the church will one day be. The devil wants the church to get smaller and weaker and keep us in a spiral of sin, followed by guilt, followed by apology and retreat, followed by more compromise and then back to sin. But the angel in this text wants John to focus. And Jesus wants us to focus. Not just on the church as she is, though we have to live through that and work at it, but also on the church as she will be. Clear as the sun, fair as the moon, and terrible as an army with banners. The church is the ultimate ugly duckling. She looks messy and dirty and compromised now, but she will be beautiful beyond imagining. And with that future in mind, we are called to express who we will be in light of, in, in the way that we are. We're called to live out that future in our present as far as we are able. And that doesn't mean ignoring the faults of the church. Right? In every Ugly Duckling movie, there seems to be a scene in which the hero gets a makeover. Right? We're called to do that. We're called to say, yeah, I want to make over the church. I want to bring the church more in line with the glorious future. So it doesn't mean giving up on the church and it doesn't mean ignoring the faults, but it does mean refusing to be cynical or despairing or hopeless and instead to be shaped by our certainty of who we will one day be, the spotless and radiant and beautiful bride of Christ. And we now treat her not just according to who she is, but who she will be on that day. So the church's job is to witness to that future bridal city and the future world that the Lord God is making. We are our witness, our purpose in the world in many ways is to draw attention up, of the, draw the attention of the world to that new world and new city that God is making that will descend from heaven to earth. And we do that in a whole bunch of ways, through evangelism, through prayer, through worship, but we also do it through communion. And in many ways what we're going to do now as we come to the Lord's table is to express this future hope in very practical ways in front to one another and to the watching world. See, as we share in the Lord's Supper, we acknowledge two things, at many others as well, but two things in, this, in the context of this message. We acknowledge that we are not perfect now, right? We acknowledge our ducklingness. We It's an opportunity to confess our sins and to repent and to look for grace, knowing that his blood is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. But we also acknowledge our swanness. We also acknowledge that the story doesn't stop here And that we are destined for a wedding supper. And so Jesus says, in the context of communion, or Paul says rather, in the context of communion, as often as you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There is a future hope in the Lord's Supper, not just a looking back or even a looking in at our sin. And that means that communion is not just a moment of confession, but it's a moment of thanksgiving. The word Eucharist, which is a word that many people in the worldwide church use for this meal, It's a word meaning thanksgiving. Eucharistia just means thankfulness. And the Lord's Supper is a Eucharist. It's a thanksgiving moment, not just a confession moment. As in, it's serious, very serious. This is the body and blood of Jesus. But it's serious, but it's not gloomy. This is not a moment, it's like a wedding is serious, rather than like a funeral is serious. It's not a funeral wake we participate in at the Lord's table. This is a wedding supper. This is an invitation to say, because you have confessed your sin and recognized where you've fallen short, you now are invited to come and receive the grace of God, the body and blood of Jesus, given for you. We confess our sins, and then we approach the throne of grace with boldness to find mercy and grace in our time of need. Hallelujah. So I wonder, could I invite you to stand? If you're able to, could you stand? In a moment, we're going to come and come to the Lord's table. We're actually going to leave our seats, which is not how we often do it, but today we're going to do it. We're going to leave our seats and we're going to come to the table of God. And you'll be shown by the welcome team where and how to do that. We're going to come to the table because we're going to receive the good gifts of Jesus to us. We're going to take a moment just to confess our sin, but then having done that, we are then going to come and receive the life-giving, glorious gifts of the Lord Jesus to us in his church. And we are celebrating the wedding supper of the Lamb ahead of time. The world is going to be renewed, right? The swan, is, the swan will come. The bride will be perfect. So if you are a repentant believer, whatever your background is, then come and welcome to Jesus Christ. If you just, in a moment, we're going to, battle will come out, be able to come out and take the elements and take the Lord's Supper. But for now, let's just momentarily pray Repent of our sin, if there is some, and then to come to the Lord's Supper to receive the gifts of God for us. Father, we thank you so much for the glories of who we will one day be. We thank you for the future hope of the church. We thank you for future new creation. But we confess that we have fallen short in so many ways of that future identity and purity we will have. Lord, we have sinned against you and against one another in the things we thought and said and even in the things we haven't done. And we are sorry. We repent. We repent. And we pray that for Jesus' sake you would forgive us all of our sins and you would enable now, us now to come to your table with joy and receive the goodness of who you are to us in the bread and the wine and the body and blood of Jesus poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins. And We pray it in his name. Amen.